joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info@channelafrica.org or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news and another hour of Africa Rise and Shine on the frequency 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa is Flavor with a song titled Noa Baby.
Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19-meter band to Far West Africa. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Onelin Zinzi, Tabiso Lohoko and Tami Kuza. In our top stories on Africa rise and shine at this hour. Commonwealth calls for peaceful election in Lesotho and concerns over the humanitarian situation in South Sudan. In economics, Angola plans to borrow $10 million in additional external debt. And in sports news, Ghana increase lobbying to host the 2017 Africa Cup of Nations. But first up, the news with Onelen Zinzi. Suicide bombers have struck two bus stations in different parts of northern Nigeria, killing at least 26 people in attacks. President Goodluck Jonathan has blamed it on Boko Haram, saying the militant group will soon be defeated. On Sunday, a girl with explosives strapped on on herself killed five people outside a market in the same town. The use of suicide bombers has become a common tactic of Boko Haram since last year as the group expands territory and becomes stronger and more deadly. Meanwhile, the number of Nigerian refugees fleeing Boko Haram terrorists to Cameroon has doubled in the past month. Channel Africa's correspondent Moki Kinzeka visited a Nigerian refugee camp in Minao and on Cameroon's northern borders with Nigeria, where the refugees' population has grown from 20,000 to 40,000 within 21 days. UN Refugee Agency staff take a roll call of Nigerians arriving here at Minawao Refugee Camp. The coordinator of UN Systems in Cameroon, Najat Rojdi, says the number of refugees has almost doubled. She says the massive arrival of refugees in villages poses problems of water, health and education and they have to act immediately to support the host communities to improve their health situations and give them water. She says the pressure is high for the host communities. Lesotho is staging early elections to restore order after a coup attempt. Concerns have been raised that a rejection of the results by some parties could spark more violence, jeopardizing hopes of improvement for the country's poor majority. The Basutus are set to hit the polls on Saturday amid fear that the early parliamentary elections aimed at restoring order could plunge the southern African kingdom into more instability and violence. Nearly five months after soldiers raided Prime Minister Tom Tabane's residence in police headquarters, tension is still running high in the capital Maseru with a shootout between soldiers and the Premier's bodyguards, killing one person earlier this month. The UN Security Council is considering a way to place sanctions against both sides of the power struggle in South Sudan as fighting continues despite several ceasefire agreements. A draft resolution has been circulated in the council calling for a sanction committee that could impose measures amid the violent power struggle between President Salvo Kiir and his former deputy Riek Machar. South Sudan's ambassador to the UN, Francis Deng, told the council yesterday that sanctions would only generate 
aggravate adversarial relationships and aggravate the situation. And finally, the ongoing crisis in the Central African Republic is worsening an already poor healthcare system in the country. According to the World Health Organization, the country has been mirrored in sectarian violence between the Muslim and Christian militias for the past two years. Hundreds of thousands of people have been forced to flee their homes as a result of the conflict. WHO representative for the country, Michelle Yahoo, explains. Access to portable water is a challenge. Most of the facilities got uh, destroyed during the crisis out of the main capital city. And uh, this can also trigger some more uh, disease uh, because people are exposed. Because of the fragile uh, contest uh, before the crisis, the crisis has actually worsened the situation. Also, because of the displacement of population, you can easily be exposed to new threats. So this movement can also expose uh, uh, more the, the population to some of the, the disease due to the fact that they are not well protected due to lack of vaccination activities. Channel Africa News. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka. Thank you, Onele. It is 8.05 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg on this Wednesday, February the 25th, the 56th day of 2015 with 309 days left in the year. In our top story, head of the Commonwealth Observer Mission that will monitor the Lesotho elections, former President of Botswana, Fistas Mukhai, says the success of the elections depends on all stakeholders. Mukhai formally launched the mission in the capital, Maseru. He says while Lesotho has a multi-dimensional relationship with the Commonwealth, the Observer Mission will look strictly at the elections, which he believes are going to be free and fair. Sadek has observers in the country and the royal family has also made another clarion call for peace. Ntakwanangadane reports. Former President of Botswana, Festus Mokhai, leads a group of seven eminent persons who will be supported by the Commonwealth Secretariat staff. Mokhai says the elections are significant for Lesotho's political future. They present a significant opportunity for Lesotho's political parties to demonstrate their commitment to democracy and development in a peaceful and credible manner following a challenging political period. The Commonwealth has already met with the IEC, political parties and civil society. The Commonwealth has been instrumental in attempts to stabilize the Lesotho coalition following the 2012 elections. It sent an expert to advise and last year organized a study tour of New Zealand to ensure a better understanding of government under a mixed member proportional representation parliamentary system. New Zealand adopted the MMP electoral system 20 years ago. Mukhai says his mission will look only at the election. Lesotho is a member of the Commonwealth. There's a multidimensional relationship with the Commonwealth. The Commonwealth Secretary sends people here in different capacities, some as experts, others as advisors. But us, the observer groups, we, are, we come strictly 
to observe and report, not to advise, not to correct, not to comment otherwise. Our only comment would be our report when we express our opinion that what we saw constituted free and fair elections, or at least credible elections, which we believe is going to be the case. Deputy Minister of State Security Ellen Mulikani is the deputy head of the Sadak Observer Mission. In so far as we are concerned, especially informed by the special votes or what they call advanced votes here in Lesotho, we think we are going to have very peaceful elections and uh, we experienced a few niggling problems uh, when we were observing the special votes, but we don't think it is anything that is untoward and the IEC is on top of the situation and I think we're going to have very peaceful elections. And another clarion call for calm came from the royal family, Prince Seiso Bering Seiso. We are hoping as traditionally it is as the family that Basutu at the end of the day will come to a common point where Mosutu comes first. We are at a point where we cannot afford to have this nation plunged into any calamity. In all honesty, politics or no politics, Mosutu is Mosutu. So we need, as Basutu, to stand shoulder to shoulder to overcome this seemingly difficult period. But if we would look deep down in our psyche, in our history, in, in, our, in our souls, we know we have the reservoir of reconciliation. We have the reservoir for sound talking. So at this time, everybody does have a voice, but those voices ought to be towards a common goal that is Basotho first and Lesotho first. The Lesotho elections were brought forward by two years because of insecurity and political turmoil. The ballot papers arrived over the weekend and the IEC will outline their readiness. Today, the head of the AU Observer Mission, former Prime Minister of Kenya, Raila Odinga, is also expected to arrive. I'm Chakwanangatani in Maseru, Lesotho. The United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs warns that the humanitarian situation in South Sudan is bound to get worse in the coming months. The agency says that the South Sudan humanitarian response is proving so expensive compared to the time span it has existed. Koleta Wanjohi reports. The South Sudan conflict that began in December 2013 has so far claimed over 10,000 people's lives. This is according to humanitarian reports. For now, the reports show that 1.5 million people have been internally displaced and more than 2.5 million others are in need of urgent food. In addition, 500,000 refugees have been forced to flee to neighboring countries of Kenya, Sudan, Ethiopia and Uganda. However, the United Nations Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, UN OCHA, warns that this situation may get worse as fighting continues between the government of South Sudan and the rebel faction led by former vice president of the country, Riek Mashar. The head of the UN OCHA office in Ethiopia, Mike McDonough, explains. The figures that I've quoted to you already are going to get worse. So I quoted to you 1.5 million people internally displaced. We expect that we'll go to almost 2 million. Uh, I quoted to you 500,000 refugees. We expect that figure will go over 800,000. 
Humanitarian agencies have complained over time that they do not have the access they need to get into South Sudan to help those who need the help most. They are also discouraged by the killing of humanitarian aid workers over time. Mike McDonough from UN OCHA office in Ethiopia explains that compared to other humanitarian situations in areas like Central African Republic, Syria and Yemen, the South Sudan conflict has strained so much of humanitarian response within a very short period of just over a year. The damage done in the last 14 months is probably more than in the previous war going back to 83 and the statistics today for internally displaced, for refugees, for numbers affected, is much worse than it ever was during the North-South War. That's the tragedy. Until March 5th, delegations of South Sudan government and rebel factions will be locked up in negotiations for a transitional government for South Sudan. The negotiations are going on in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. But UN OCHA says that even if peace is reached, it will be the beginning of more work. This is because there will be need to reconstruct the physical damage that has been caused by the war in both rural and urban areas in South Sudan. In addition, there will also be need of repairing the social fabric that has been destroyed by this conflict. Koletanjoy for Channel Africa in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. The ongoing crisis in the Central African Republic is worsening an already poor healthcare system in the country, according to the World Health Organization, the WHO. The country has been mired in sectarian violence between the Muslim and Christian militia for the past two years. Hundreds of thousands of people have been forced to flee their homes as a result of the conflict. Daniel Johnson discussed the Central African Republic crisis with Michelle Yao, WHO representative for the country. One of the main diseases we are concerned about is uh, measles. And uh, if the children don't have uh, the full range of uh, immunization, then they are quite exposed to this outbreak. And we noticed it already last year. We had about more than eight alerts of uh, increasing number of measles. We have uh, also diphtheria that is also increasing in the children's population. So these are the main concerns. And in addition, we are concerned about some of the diarrhea disease because access to potable water is a challenge. Most of the facilities got uh, destroyed during the crisis out of the main capital city. And uh, this can also trigger some more uh, disease uh, because people are exposed to is there a sense that the healthcare system is deteriorating and that the initial problems caused by the conflict areas has got a lot worse exacerbated throughout the whole country? Yeah, sure. Because of the fragile uh, contest uh, before the crisis, the crisis has actually worsened the situation. Also, because of the displacement of population, you can easily be exposed to new threat. You've got 400,000 IDPs in the country. Uh, exactly. And uh, last year in January, we had even uh, 800,000. We have also refugees. And we have refugees in Cameroon, where last year we had uh, polio cases, even within 
a refugee camp. So this movement can also expose uh, uh, more the, the population to some of uh, the disease due to the fact that they are not well protected due to lack of vaccination activities. And uh, so the crisis has actually worsened by destroying more the health service delivery capacity, but also exposing more people by displacement new threat. You're actually asking for less money than last year. Why is that? In the humanitarian side, but uh, the request is increasing in the development side. So this time we were to present the humanitarian need, but in Central Africa Republic uh, we can easily talk about uh, hundreds of millions in terms of uh, to restore the health services. So we have to split both because in the donors' countries' mind uh, there are um, a kind of uh, support to the humanitarian that are critical life-saving things, but at the same time, in Central Africa, we have a huge need to restore the, the services. And uh, we are also appealing for this side. And this goes to development countries and also to reestablish bilateral collaboration with uh, some of the countries. It includes training uh, health workers, uh, reestablishing the supply chain. So it's more heavy than the 60 million. We, we were, if my memory is good, we were even talking about 300 million just uh, for the next two years to restore the health services in Central Africa. That was Dr. Michelle Yao, WHO representative in the Central African Republic, speaking to UN Radio's Daniel Johnson. It's 8.17 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. The Zambian parliament has resumed sitting yesterday after adjourning last year with President Edgar Lungu having taken over power. The House takes up a new complexion with the new Vice President Inonge Wina, while her predecessor Guy Scott will take the back seat. Athaskopo has more. Zambia's parliament Tuesday afternoon resumed after Janine Senior died last year to allow for presidential elections following the death of then-Republican President Michael Chilufia Sata. Parliament resumed sitting with some changes seeing Zambia's first female vice president leading the House as leader of government business. Two more ministers, that includes Minister of Commerce and Deputy Minister at State House, Margaret Monakatwe and Mlenga Sata respectively, have joined the old crop of members of parliament. The House resumed with about less five seats that are yet to be filled in following the nullification by the courts of law on account of corruption, while the other was being held by Edgar Chogalungu, who was, until his election as President of Zambia last month, Member of Parliament for one of the constituencies in Lusaka. But what is the expectations of Zambians from this Parliament? Kelvin Sampa is a civil and child rights activist. I would love to see the commitment by the members of parliament towards the enactment of or rather enshrining of the children's rights into our constitution. Those that are coming into the house uh, for the first time, uh, what do you expect uh, them to do? To be honest with you, I expect them to change the, 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 the way the approach of parliament should be because they are coming from a different uh, section of society, which is the younger generation. And for me, I expect them to be even be more louder than the people, not only being loud for the sake of being heard, but to contribute issues that are affecting the younger people because they are aware what is your advice to those that have been moved from uh, one ministerial position to the other? Being moved from one place to the other doesn't mean that you're a failure. These people who have been moved 
must just dedicate their work towards why they are members of parliament. Reporting for Channel Africa in Lusaka, Zambia, I'm Arthur Skopo. The number of Nigerian refugees fleeing Boko Haram terrorism to Cameroon has doubled in the past month. Channel Africa's Moki Kinzega visited a Nigerian refugee camp in Minawao on Cameroon's northern border with Nigeria, where the refugee population has grown from 20,000 to 40,000 within 21 days. Where is his senior brother? He said after when he registered, he ran to Mokolo. I know the reason why that he ran to Mokolo. UN refugee agency staff take a roll call of Nigerians arriving here at Minawawo refugee camp. The coordinator of UN systems in Cameroon, Najat Rojdi, says the number of refugees has almost doubled. L'arrivée des réfugiés dans des villages pose aussi des problèmes supplémentaires en matière d'eau, en matière. She says the massive arrival of refugees in villages poses problems of water, health, and education, and they have to act immediately to support the host communities to improve their health situations and give them water. She says the pressure is high for the host communities. Un point d'eau, c'est quand même une forte pression pour la communauté. Among the recent arrivals at Minawau is 41-year-old Muhammadu Usman, the oldest brother in a family of 14, who says he lost all of his siblings when they turned down recruitment offers from the Nigerian militants group. They killed my brothers. Oh, the Boko Haram, they will come and attack you. Can you join us when you say no? They will kill you. My mother just advised me to go. I told her, when I go, who can get the food? She said, no, I should go. Usman is a Muslim, and his presence in the camp is not appreciated by Christians who say they underwent physical and psychological torture in Nigeria in the hands of people who said they were Muslims. Elias Yeager, a Catholic Christian, says they have been asking Cameroon security forces to be watchful of all Muslims in the camp. They combine us, both Muslim and Christian. But sometimes we got problem because we call them Boko Haram sometimes. They will catch them and carry to the security here. Last week, the Cameroonian forces arrested hundreds of the refugees, saying they were suspected Boko Haram fighters who had infiltrated the camp. Yega says life has been extremely difficult for him and his family for the one week he has been here. I brought my family all. My wife is in the market. My children, they are from school. They give us food normally, but the feeding will not satisfy us. That's why they call us here today in meeting. So maybe tomorrow they will give us the feeding. We eat two times in the day. According to the feed way they give us, we, we cook it in our various our houses. Muhammad Buka, a cattle rancher who fled from Yerwa, Bono State, says he is thankful to God for saving his life from the insurgents, but says the increasing number of Nigerians in the refugee camp is making living conditions unbearable. Unfortunately, day by day, people are coming. The population is increasing. There is no water. There is no place of toilet. We are just dumping anyhow. Now, in this camp, about 15 days, we didn't 
get our food. All of us now we are in hunger. Now we are just hanging around. Najat Rojdi of the UN system in Cameroon says a humanitarian crisis is looming with the influx of refugees. We want really, really guide Kolofata later tomorrow to remove the 7,500 who are in a zone of security. She says that with the help of Cameroon's military and local authorities, they are about to transfer 5,500 refugees who are at Kolofata to Minawau. Rojji says the plan is to transfer between 750 and 1,000 per day, and that in two days they already transferred 1,200 refugees to Minawau. As Cameroon, the United Nations and the international community struggle to attend to the growing needs of the displaced persons and refugees, some Nigerian kids who constitute the majority of refugees at the Minawao camp say they want to get an education, just what they are denied by the militant group in their own country. Nine-year-old Bijigile James who has been enrolled in class at the camp, says his dream is to become a medical doctor. I want to do something that when my teacher can teach me. Well, me, I want to teach him. If I have, if I have learned something so the, the people, that they can say that you are a good boy. He is nostalgic about his country, Nigeria, and misses the education he had in his hometown, Yerwa. He told me when Boko Haram will give peace a chance, he will return to his lovely country, Nigeria. James sang his country's national anthem as I left. I rise cold, oh patriot, Nigeria's cold, oh bear, to serve our fatherland, we trust our strength away. And that report by Channel Africa's Moki Kinzaga in Minawau refugee camp in northern Cameroon. Let's go back in time to today in 1993. U.S. Marines and Nigerian soldiers blast at snipers in central Mogadishu in Somalia in a five-hour battle that kills one Somali. That was Today in History in 1993. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na unai. South African Health Minister Aaron Mutswaledi has confirmed that the South African government was never in charge of DNA tests to verify the identities of the South Africans who died when a Nigerian church building collapsed in September last year. Mutswaledi was reacting to the allegations from the Mkulisi family 
from Benoni, east of Johannesburg, that they received the wrong body. The family has since decided to conduct private DNA tests to verify if the body they received is that of Pumzilim Kulisi. She was among the 85 South Africans who died in the tragedy that claimed 116 lives in Lagos. Wisani Makubele reports. When government finally managed to repatriate the remaining 11 of the 85 bodies of the Nigerian building collapse earlier this month, it had hoped that the chapter would be closed. However, the Mkulisi family from Benoni on the East Rand has refused to bury the remains they received from government. They insist they are not those of their family member, Pumzile Mkulisi. Following their suspicions, they had urged the 10 other families not to bury their bodies until they had independently verified their identities. Their pleas were ignored. The Mkulisi family's plans to immediately send the body to private pathologists for DNA testing were summarily put on hold on Monday last week when the Department of Health allegedly sent a letter to the mortuary where the body was kept, instructing them not to allow anybody to touch it. The family was planning to approach the High Court in Johannesburg for help, only to receive a letter from the department on Friday last week, giving them the go-ahead. Family spokesperson Luandlem Kulisi says they've now sent in the samples for testing. We wait for the results, which is about 14 working days, and then after the results, and then we'll take it from there. But also I'm appealing to other families to come forward, those who don't look at these bags that we are giving. Because some of the families simply just bury them without looking inside what's inside. So they must come forward, tell us whether they did not look or look inside the body bag. The Mkulisi family alleges that when they as well as the other families were given the bodies, government instructed them not to open the body bags. However, Health Minister Arun Mutwalidi says they were only advised not to view the bodies because of the state they were in. After the arrival of the 11 bodies from Nigeria earlier this month, government said that the DNA processes were done thoroughly to yield positive results that enabled the Home Affairs Department to issue that certificate. Now the minister says the South African government was never in charge of DNA tests to verify the identities of the victims. Motswalidi says they had no reason to doubt the work of the Nigerian government. Right from the beginning when this disaster occurred, we were not in charge. The accident never occurred on our soil. So everything that was done by pathologists and all that was done by the Nigerian government. Even the DNA was done here in South Africa but in a private pathologist for which we have got no control through the Nigerian government. So if they have done any mishap, it is them and we also want to know the truth. The University of Stellenbosch was also involved in the DNA testing at the behest of the Nigerian government. However, the university's Dr. Manro Max could not elaborate on that process. Our mandate came from the Nigerian government and we cooperated with the South African Department of Health. Mutsualidi says while the Nigerian government spearheaded the DNA test process, they are willing to help the Mkulisi family. Bring the body back to us. We'll bring in our world-renowned pathologist. The family has got all the right to hire any private pathologist to get to the bottom of this thing. The nation would like to know the truth. We too would like to know the truth because we worked on task of what the Nigerian government and the, the DNA laboratory in Stellenbosch in university is doing. When they tell us this body belongs to so-and-so, we have done a DNA, we had no reason to question them. So we were sitting right there in the middle. Luandlem Kulisi says the family welcomes government's offer, saying the message is quite encouraging. So I think it's a, it's a positive move on our side of our government because as far as I know, the verification was done by the Nigerian government. But now it seems as if 
we as a Mkulisi family are against our own government. No, it, it's not supposed to be like that. We truly accept whatever help they give us. And also it's going to be difficult for us as a family to approach an international government, you see. So if, if the government is willing to assist us, then we appreciate their help. While the Mkulisi family awaits the results of the DNA test, there are questions on how that outcome will affect the other families. For now, the family is urging those who have already buried their loved ones to come forward and declare if they did or did not view the bodies. It's 8.31 Central African time and our headlines are up next with Onel Nsinzi. Suicide bombers strike two buses in different parts of northern Nigeria, killing at least 26 people. The United States appoints the first U.S. ambassador to Somalia in more than two decades, and the U.N. Security Council to place sanctions against both sides of the power struggle in South Sudan as fighting continues despite several ceasefire agreements. Channel Africa News. Thank you, Onele. One of the casualties of the Ebola of Ebola in Liberia has been in it, its health care infrastructure, including its second largest referral hospital. Liberia is one of the three West African countries that have been hardest hit by Ebola, which has claimed over nine thousand three hundred lives in the region. Redemption Hospital, located in a town just outside the capital, Monrovia, has survived the Ebola crisis despite the loss of some of its staff to the disease, as Lisa White reports. Redemption Hospital is Liberia's second largest referral hospital, located in the borough of New Crew Town, just outside Liberia's capital, Monrovia. This hospital is a survivor of the Ebola crisis. During the height of the crisis, two factors led to heightened fear. At least 10 of its hospital staff, including doctors, nurses, a midwife, security guards, and cleaners, died from the virus. Added to that, the hospital was also used as a holding center for those who had been turned away from other Ebola treatment units and was later shut down. Lucretia Kwekwe is an assistant supervisor in the hospital's maternity ward. She has worked with pregnant mothers and babies there for two and a half years. She says the Redemption Hospital of today is not the Redemption Hospital of yesterday. Redemption is far better than what it was before Ebola situation. We used to manage things in redemption. There's greater emphasis on infection prevention control practices to protect hospital staff and patients from Ebola and other infectious diseases. Nurses now wear boots, scrubs, hairnets, and long sleeves as a protective measure. Like people say before this whole crisis, nurses were careless because we used to like bring patients closer to us, but now you see with nurses and patients in distance because nobody almost attaching on patients because before a woman in labor, you will see us rubbing her bag, oh, don't cry, and joking, well, but listen, you find out a patient and a nurse is at a distance and we talk. The person should be at least three feet 
from you. Today, the government-run 200-bed facility has reopened with the assistance of the African Union, Médecins Sans Frontières, and the International Rescue Committee. These three organizations, in collaboration with the Ministry of Health, decontaminated and renovated the facility. Now, Redemption has taken a different trend. We have the labor ward and we have the delivery room. We have, like, eight beds on the labor ward. Now it's six. And we have, like, five beds in the, in the delivery room. And we'll reduce it to three. And when they're full, she says, they're full. When they are all occupied, the only thing we need to do is to assess the patient, make a referral call the ambulance system. Because they are put in or ambulance system, we're in, you make a call and we take the patient to the nearest facility and it's out of redemption. Donations from international organizations, in addition to the contributions from the National Drug Service and the Ministry of Health, ensure that there are enough supplies and medicines for patients. Reporting for Unmir, I'm Lisa White. Let's go back in time to today in 1990. In an effort to promote peace in South Africa's Natal region, the African National Congress leader Nelson Mandela made a trip to Durban to speak to ANC supporters. Mandela addressed a rally attended by over 100,000 people in Durban in which he called upon ANC followers to throw away their weapons. Let's listen to this report from SABC Archives. In contrast to Mr. Mandela's first rally held in Cape Town a few weeks ago, his Durban reception was underscored by a more organized and more disciplined meeting and by an exuberance of singing and chanting of freedom songs. And in a speech punctuated by calls for reconciliation, Mr. Mandela pledged himself to a renewal of ties among all. Amongst ourselves, waste our energy and disguise our unity. My message to those of you involved in this battle of brother against brother is this. Take your guns, your knives, and your pandas and throw them into the sea. We praise all organizations which have fought to retain the dignity of our people. Although there are fundamental differences between us, we commend Inkata for their demand over the years for the unbanning of the ANC and the release of political prisoners, as well as for their stand of refusing to participate in a negotiated settlement without the creation of a necessary climate. This stand of Inkata has contributed in no small measure to making it difficult for the regime to implement successive schemes designed to perpetuate minority rule. That was former South African President Nelson Mandela addressing an ANC rally in Durban on this day in 1990. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai.
Within 10 years, researchers predict that 48 countries will be water scarce. This prediction has been documented in a new report by the United Nations launched yesterday in the United States city of New York. Presenting their report, officials of the UN University and the UN Office for Sustainable Development urge the global community to work harder to achieve international water goals to preempt looming conflicts born of desperation. Jane Matabula has more. According to the report, an estimated 25% of the world's major river basins run dry for part of each year, and new conflicts are likely to emerge as more of the world's rivers become further heavily abstracted so that they can no longer make it to the sea. Providing in-depth analysis of 10 countries, it shows how achieving water and sanitation-related sustainable development goals, or SDGs, offers a rapid, cost-effective way to achieve sustainable development. Co-author of the report, Corinne Schuster-Wallace, further explains. The essence of the report is that water is a critical entry point for sustainable development because of global environmental change, because of land use, land cover, hydroclimatic change. There is a redistribution of water resources going on around the world and some people are seeing increased floods, some people are seeing increased droughts. And so it is extremely imperative when you think of the damages, when you think of the number of people without access to safe drinking water and adequate sanitation and hygiene. And it could keep getting worse as we move forward unless we do something about it under the Sustainable Development Goals. The report is published in the run-up to the adoption this September of Universal Post-2015 SDGs. Schuster Wallace reflects on the lessons taken from the Millennium Development Goals or MDGs in relation to water and sanitation. The Millennium Development Goal really didn't focus on water and sanitation access in healthcare facilities. And so, again, we have another vulnerable population that didn't fall under the Millennium Development Goal activities. The Millennium Development Goal targets were also to halve the number of people without access. And the Sustainable Development Goal targets call for universal access. Universal access 100% of the populations in every country, but also universal in terms of the locations in which these wash facilities are offered. And again, with population growth, with disasters that wash away infrastructure, we seem to be behind in many countries where we can't keep up with the demand and the need for water and sanitation facilities. Schuster Wallace explains what needs to be looked into to overcome the looming water scarcity. The report, as I say, focuses on 10 different countries, and we looked at the existing capacity, the current aspirational targets that they have, particularly under their national development plans, and also the future needs that were identified through these case studies, and found that many of the needs, many of the concerns are similar across different countries. For example, capacity needs, and it's government capacity, it's capacity for technical expertise, it's capacity to reach out to the general public and civil society. There are other needs for infrastructure, for increasing the security of source water, the quantity of water available in different areas, also to improve the quality, to increase monitoring, analysis, and forecasting capacity in different 
entities in different governments, and to innovate financing to be able to support all of the needs that have been identified. She adds that the report also underscores the need to crack down severely on corruption in the water sector as a crime against humanity. Corruption in the water sector has been suggested to be as high as 30%. And what we're saying is that if we don't know where we're going to find the funds to undertake the requirements for water sustainable development goals more specifically, then how can we absorb a 30% excess or wastage within that? And so part of the solution has to be to eliminate the inefficiencies in financial mechanisms and of our financial resources. So corruption is part of that. Authors of the report maintain that it fills a critical gap in understanding the complexities associated with water resources and their management and also provides substantive options that enable people to move forward within the global dialogue. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Matebula in Johannesburg. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Africa, wake up. Africa, Africa, revive toi. Africa, Africa, wema. Sun rises. Le soleil est levé. Weya wema. What's in the happen, Africa? Africa, Dumelang Sanbonani. Africa, Mulishani, Mulibwanji. Africa, Enyomi, Kilonshele. Africa, Ndinkim, Kinkunume. What's in the happen, Africa? It doesn't matter where you come from. Lesotho, Kenya, Zambia, Ghana, Nigeria, Tanzania, Congo, Liberia, Togo, Ethiopia, DRC, South Africa, Swaziland, Morocco, Botswana, Gabon, Zimbabwe, Mauritania, Senegal, Sierra Leone, Liberia. It doesn't matter where you're from. We are one people. Channel Africa. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. This is DJ Cleo with G Exploits from Nigeria. Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. It's 8.45 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Let's go back in time to today in 2004. A protest erupts in northern Uganda about the government's inability to crush the Lord's Resistance Army, a quasi-religious movement that seeks to overthrow the administration of President Yoweri Museveni and at least nine people are killed. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Lehuku. The South African Chamber of Commerce and Industry says it hopes that today's budget speech will shed light on progress made in infrastructure investment programs and funding for the National Health Insurance Scheme. Finance Minister Ntlantlanena will deliver the budget in Parliament this afternoon. Marissa Simoes reports. SACI President Vusi Kumalo says the Chamber also wants clarity on progress made with service delivery at municipal level and measures to cut bottlenecks and red tape for businesses. Kumalo says it's looking for reassurance to foreign and domestic investors on economic stability, specifically relating to concerns about nationalization and plans to reduce the fiscal deficit. Marisa Samoz, SABC News, Johannesburg. 
A countrywide strike in the South African post office is imminent. Now, this according to the Communication Workers Union. South Africans suffered losses amounting to millions of dollars during a five-month strike by post office workers last year. CWU is demanding a 15% wage increase and the removal of acting post office CEO Simo Lushaba. It accuses Lushaba of closing down 100 post office outlets in the last three months, resulting in workers losing their jobs. The union's president, Clyde Mervyn. We have not received any notice from any union or employee formation to, to go on strike as prescribed by law. So any uh, industrial activity, therefore, would be illegal. And also to be regrettable because at this stage, really the post office is not in a position to face and to go through any industrial action. Should anything like that happen, it will further erode the confidence that customers uh, were beginning to have on us. Angola plans to borrow $10 billion in additional external debt this year. The country is hoping to get a $1 billion credit line from the World Bank and borrow billions more from China. After a drop in oil prices, the move has prompted the finance ministry to slash $17 billion off this year's budget. Nigeria will call an extraordinary meeting of the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, OPEC, if crude oil prices slip any further. OPEC President uh, Diazani Alison Madueke says they're already uh, talking with member countries. He says almost all OPEC countries, except perhaps the Arab bloc, are very uncomfortable. Brent crude has risen marginally towards $59 a barrel. U.S. crude has meanwhile settled lower for the fifth consecutive session on the back of a more-than-expected crude stock build. This provided reassurance to investors worried uh, about a weaker global economy. Investors will also look ahead to the world's second-largest oil consumer, China's February Purchasing Manager Index data for more signals on the health of the world economy. Indicators. The U.S. dollar trades at 11.59 South African Rand, 9.49 Botswana Pula, 6.94 in Zambia, 0.64 British Pound, 8.7 Euro, Gold $1.209, Platinum $1.171 an ounce, Brand Crude 5.888 cents a barrel. Economic update. Africa Sports Soapy continues on Channel Africa. The glory. I'm so happy. We've been running after this cup for so long. And now we are happy. The drama. Victory belongs to the side that scores most in the temple of calculations before the battle. The intrigue. I think the coach must come out here and say he made a mistake. I strongly believe that he had dodged the question. The suspense and the fallout. People, people, people must understand. We have won all our friends. Uh, don't be like shakes. Don't count that. A <laughs> <laughs> sports update up next with Tammy Kuza. Thanks for joining us once again. Ghana are on a one step to getting the right to host the 2017 Africa Cup of Nations after Egypt withdrew yesterday. The Black Star Nation is increasing diplomatic efforts at continental level 
to make sure that the next tournament is hosted in their backyard. Egyptian authorities announced their decision to support Algeria largely because the security concerns in their country were not that sufficient. The AFCON 2017 hosting decision will be made on April the 8th and it sees Gabon as the other strong favourite in contention. Former South Africa's Bafana Bafana defender and captain of the 1996 AFCON winning national team Nel Tovi has been hospitalised after suffering three heart attacks yesterday morning. Media reports that Tovi 52 is currently in the intensive care unit in Devon Hospital. There are no further details on Tovi's condition, but it's believed that Tovi had had to be repeatedly resuscitated yesterday. This news comes after reports earlier this week that another former Bafana star, John Shoes Mushu, is fighting for his life in a Johannesburg Hospital. The president of the South African Football Association, Denny Ordan, has sent his best wishes to the national under-17 men's team that will face Nigeria in their semi-final of the African Youth Championships tonight that will be played in Niamey in Niger. Jordan says his organization believes that the team will get the better of Nigeria and contest the final. He says that the national under-17 team has won the hearts of many in Niger, including their opponents, by producing high-quality football. We hope that they will... Uh, show against Nigeria that they are one of the best, if not the best, under-17 team on our continent. Uh, many players received huge praise from many of the, the CAF technical uh, staff who were there in, in Asia. They called to say, I don't want to mention these players, but they mentioned some of the players whom they think were the best players on show who they have in the South African team and again producing high-quality football. Now, in the women's section, South Africa's Banyana Banyana coach Vera Pau says that the Cyprus Women's Cup will give her charges an ideal workout ahead of a busy year for the senior national women's team. Pau has named her 23 women's squad for the upcoming Cyprus Women's Cup, scheduled to be played from the 4th until the 11th of next month. Banyana are preparing for the qualifying matches in both the All-Africa Games and the Olympics, and the dashboard mentor says that the trip to Europe could have come at a better time. The aim in uh, Cyprus is especially to gain experience at that highest level, to perform under the pressure of higher opposition, and um, we will see what that brings us. We will gain the uh, experience that we need, and without that experience you cannot make steps. We are going to face a fantastic tournament. In cricket, Zimbabwean skipper Elton Chikumbura has implored his team to improve their bowling at the death in their World Cup matches. This after West Indies' acceleration of scoring late in their innings as Chris Gale and Marlon Samuel piled on a one-day record stand of 372 to take the game away from them at Canberra yesterday. Natalie Germanos has more. A record-breaking day for Chris Gale and for the West Indies has resulted in a win for the West Indies over Zimbabwe by 73 runs on the Duckworth-Lewis method. The West Indies made 372 for two in their 50 overs, which included a partnership of 372, the highest partnership in one-day international history. And in the end, Chris Gale made 215 of 147 balls, with his double century coming off 138 balls, the fastest in ODI history. He hit 10 fours and 16 sixes, equaling the record in an ODI 
high innings set by Rohit Sharma and A.B. de Villiers. Marlon Samuels made an undefeated 133 of 156 balls with 11 fours and three sixes, his highest in one-day internationals. Zimbabwe, in reply, made a good fight of it, but eventually were all out for 289 in the 45th over. A top score of 76 came from Sean Williams, who faced 61 balls and hit nine fours. Chris Gale, the man of the match, also took two wickets for 35 in his six overs, while Jerome Taylor and Jason Holder picked up three wickets apiece. And finally, in tennis, Wheelchair Tennis South Africa has named two teams to represent the nation in the upcoming BNP Paribas World Team Cup Africa Qualification Tournament in Nairobi in Kenya. The country will be represented by six players in the men's and women's division at the international event, which takes place from February the 26th to March the 1st. The qualifying event will be played in the round-robin format. South Africa is set to face host Kenya, Ghana, Egypt, Morocco, Mauritius and Tanzania, with all seven teams looking to end qualification into the BNP Paribas World Team Cup that will be held at the club Ali Bay in Mangav in Turkey from May the 25th until the 31st. South Africa's top-ranked player in the men's division, world number 15, Evans Mariba, will spearhead the men's squad. Mariba, who won the Queensland Open earlier this year, will team up with Leon Els and Sean de Hislam. World number 9, Hotato KG Munjane, the country's top-ranked women player, will lead the women's side. Munjane, who also won the Queensland Open in Brisbane last month, will be be joined by Marika Fender and Tando Lajuayo. That's the end of our sport and back to Lulugabu. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka. Recapping our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at this hour Commonwealth calls for peaceful election in Lesotho and concerns over the humanitarian situation in South Sudan. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumuto Ramagaza, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za or tweet us at Rise Shine Africa. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern Africa is Cesario Evora with a track titled Sangue de Beirona.
Good morning and welcome to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance, broadcasting to you from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. First, let's cross over to the news desk for the latest news from Africa and abroad. Taking a